What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguera. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me. It was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. And it's funny, I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Look, it's funny. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Aguero. Today we have a really fascinating case about a guy named John Riccardi, who was a stalker, murderer, and apparently a lot more than that, too. None of it good. And you knew this guy. He was on death row with you for some time. So we're going to get into that, get the inside story on what motivated this guy. He actually killed a woman named Connie Navarro, and kind of interesting fact, she was the mother of guitarist Dave Navarro, which is how some of you might have heard of this case. Real quick, we have a listener-submitted question from Kyle in Okinawa, and he asks, yeah, we have a lot of international listeners. I think that they're fascinated by the fact that we still have the death penalty in America. So he asks, Bill, you encounter all these criminals, all these weirdos, psychopaths, and, you know, a common trait among them is that they're pathological liars, that they lie a lot and just say untrustworthy things. And he asks, uh, what is the stupidest, most implausible lie that one of these guys has ever told you? Pathological liars, and yeah, I guess it's my job when it when it really counts to figure out when they're lying. And for me, it's always about consistency. And you know, stories don't change over the years. But I've had guys tell me stories that were so far fetched that they could only be a lie. But then again, I've had guys tell me stories that seem completely like he made it up. And only to find out a couple of years later when his case comes out in the Supreme Court dailies and I read the case, the guy was telling me the absolute truth. So some of the biggest whoppers I've gotten was this guy who, you know, I won't, I won't say his name because he is here still with me. He's not a terrible guy, but he can't help himself. And the lie was that he told everybody here that he was a um, a professional uh, surfer and that he had surfed in the circuit for years. So I'm sitting on the yard while he's telling the story to a guy right across from me. And he looks at me and I'm sure he thought, huh, dumb spick. Okay, yeah, I know it's politically incorrect, but we're talking about me here. So I'm sure that's what he thought. So he starts telling this guy about surfboards and where he surfed and all this stuff. And I looked over at him and I said, huh, so you surfed this spot? He's like, yeah, it was this spot. And I said, well, was it on the north side or south side of the pier? And he looks at me and he's like, well, it was the, it was the south side. And I said, okay. I said, uh, so what kind of board did you ride? And he starts telling me the story about this board they had custom made by a guy that he knew. It turns out the guy he's talking about, I knew the guy. Because, well, if you've read my book, I was a member of the pack. I, I, I'm a surfer. I'm a waterman. That's what I did. Since he's just like six. So he's telling me about this board. And I said, what kind of tail was it? You know, a swallowtail? Was it a pintail? Was it a thruster? Was it a twin fin? Was it a single fin? And it finally begins to dawn on this guy, like, huh, 
this guy's not the dumb stick he looks like. This guy might know what he's talking about. So then I asked him the trick question was, well, how, how big was the board? And of course, he's seen the Gidget movies or whatever. He said, oh, it was, you know, it was an 11-foot board. I said, did you actually ride the thing? I mean, did it actually move? <laughs> because the spot that you're talking about, the waves are like two to three feet, man. What the hell are you talking about? And then that's when it hits him. And I'm just looking, I'm like, come on, man. If you're going to tell me a lie, please give me at least the respect to make it a good, respectable lie. So I know that's not probably what the listener was looking for, but that to me was like the craziest lie in the world because the guy made the entire thing up. It wasn't even partially true. The entire thing was a lie. Yeah, surfing is a good go-to for macho bluster to step away from... I have a girlfriend who's a model in France. So how are you... (laughs) But I mean, do you have like a... How do you know these guys are lying or not just on a regular basis when you hear these things? I mean, do you have a degree in behavioral science? Or how do you... When you're reporting stuff in your book, how do you know if something maybe more plausible is true or not? You know, that's a great question. But look, it's a lot about common sense in a lot of cases and knowing a little bit about a lot of things and you can tell when someone's kind of lying but when it comes to people like criminals and i'm actually observing them to, to answer your first question no i do not have a de- no i do not have a degree in behavioral sciences from my own university i do have a master's degree in human behavior from the university of san quentin state prison where my life is dependent on it so I know that a lot of people, experts, go by, look, I have a degree here, and I went to Harvard, and I went to Yale. That's really not going to help you a whole lot in the real world when it comes to behavioral science and criminals when they're going to take your life. Let me call back. As I was saying, look, you could go to school for 50 years on how to fly an airplane and read all the books in the world. But unless you actually fly an airplane, you're not going to know what's going on. It's the same thing with behavioral sciences. Look, law enforcement officers don't really go to school how to catch criminals. It's on-the-job training. Yeah, they get the basics. But what they know is they get on the beat from dealing with criminals. They, they, they learn how they move, how gang experts will tell you. You can't go to school for this. You have to be around gangs to start learning how they move, how they act, what they do. Unfortunately for law enforcement and these people that study criminals, they don't spend a lot of time with criminals because they put them in prison and that's it. They forget about them. I actually live with them. So when they're lying to me, it's about consistency. It's about trade movement. Some guys look up when they lie. Sometimes they look to the side. Some guys move their hands certain ways. Look, at one time, Cal Poly Pomona in Los Angeles brought me in because at the time I was a Hapkido middleweight champion. And they wanted me to teach classes on self-defense. Look, I can't teach a class in three months to a woman or to a man on how to defend themselves a guy who a guy against a guy who actually is coming out of the dark against them with something in their hat. It's almost impossible. Yeah, you can teach a few basics, but the most important part I taught those particular students and normal people were your instincts. If you go out into a parking lot and you feel it's dark and you feel something's not right, step back, call the police. But it's better to be embarrassed by someone telling you, look, there's nothing out there. Your, your imagination is playing tricks on you, as opposed to you walking out and a serial killer killing you. And the reason I was called in was because there was a serial killer that was killing women in at USC, UCLA, whatever. His name was Stevie Fields. He was here with me. It's kind of strange that after they caught him, I ended up in the same place with this character. So it's it's about instinct, and that's what the behavioral science is about. Instinct. You're human, so you watch humans, and you learn all the traits that they have. Different criminals have different traits, but there are models for certain people how they act. You can tell when someone's lying because of how they act. Their breathing increasing, it increases. They shift in their feet. There's certainly not. There's experts that lie, and they're great at it. But consistency is the thing that catches them after five, six, seven, eight years of me, and I'm watching them the whole time. 
that's when it comes in. So there's where my degrees come from. They're not normal degrees or conventional degrees. They're based on actual observation and being around these guys. And I've been doing it my whole life. As a very small boy, you know, my beatings and how I got beat up really uh, was about how I can anticipate how my father was going to act or someone else was going to act. You know, it's, it's, it's about watching and becoming an observer. Not everybody can do it. I was kind of forced into it because of survival. I've become pretty good at it. Yeah, and that kind of leads in, in my awkward segue, to our topic today, which is John Riccardi, who we haven't um, covered a case, uh, a subject like this, because he is a total weirdo and a really scary guy. But first and foremost, I would describe him as a stalker, and, and we haven't had a straight-up stalker case. I don't know how common this is in the real world, but this guy was extreme to the point of, I mean, this is what those Lifetime movies are based on. And when you read about his activities and how he just picked this one woman to torment before unfortunately killing her and almost killing her many, many different times. I don't know if he was doing it to other women, but um, you just hear this story and you just feel bad for this woman. At least I do. That's That was my kind of takeaway is like, he really just mentally tortured this woman for, you know, months and months. And uh, and you knew this guy, John Riccardi, right? I, I did know him. He, for, for many years, he, well, actually, I, I spent a lot of time speaking to John. And, you know, not in any way to highlight this guy for the guy that he is as opposed to the victims because there were two victims actually Connie Navarro as well as Susan Yori. He killed two people but on the surface of this case you said it looks like a stalker case um, and he looks like a really terrible guy for what he did and he did terrible acts no doubt about it and I'm not here to clean this guy up but what makes him so interesting is because John Riccardi is not really the guy that you at first look at. You know, he was, um, first of all, this happened between, this happened in 1983 when he was at, when he actually killed Connie Navarro and Susan Yari. Connie Navarro is the mother of David Navarro, who is the lead guitarist of Jane's Addiction, then became the lead guitarist uh, for the Red Hot Chili Peppers while they were on tour. This guy's a very accomplished guitarist. He is, um, you know, he made, multiple shows. I think one of the shows was Rockstar on CBS. And he was married to Carmen Electra. The guy really is a very accomplished musician, songwriter. And at the time when this happened, he was only a 15-year-old boy. Um, why this case is different, because John Riccardi was actually in a relationship with Connie Navarro. That was his girlfriend. And Dave Navarro considered him, John Riccardi, a family. This guy was very close to the family. They spent between 1980 and 1983. They were together as a couple. However, towards the end of the relationship, Connie Navarro decided to end the relationship with John Riccardi. And he didn't take it very well, as obviously. Um, but, you know, this is, this is something that you have to look at John Riccardi almost for his whole career. So first of all, he never had violence in his career, ever. He was what you call a high-end burglar. And he was doing this the whole time he was with Connie or Constance Navarro. He'd been doing this whole life. He had convictions in New York prior to coming to Los Angeles. And for all accounts, this guy was basically a shadow. What I mean by that is he had mob connections in the Italian mob. He is a, he talked with a heavy New York accent. And when I first met him, you know, he is this white haired guy. He has a full head of hair, a charming guy. Uh, not by any stretch of the imagination did he seem like he was out of a neighborhood, very refined. He was a professional bodybuilder. Uh, he had finer tastes in life, you know, great wines, scotch, brandy. He drove Cadillacs. This guy was 
when you look at it and you say, that's a good seller, meaning he was had ties to the mom. I asked him point blank, were you a made guy? And he laughed, no, no, no. I had associates that I, had, that I grew up with, and they were my fences. That's right. I unloaded all my jewelry, all the gold that I had, whatever he stole, that's where his fences went through that. So this guy was a character. I mean, I was wondering how he was dating these women that were of higher character than he was. And then I saw a picture of him and he's, you know, this really jacked like bodybuilder guy. And I'd assumed he was charming, but I don't know what he purported to do for a living. Like, I, I don't know hardly anything about the origins of this story. Yeah, you'd be very surprised. I, I got it from him personally. So I talked to the guy, and as I said, I know when someone's lying to me. I mean, I can't hit you 10 out of 10 times, but I, I get pretty close to honing in on So, And John wasn't up. He didn't brag about anything. He basically just told you what he did. When I met him, you know, he was an older man. I mean, we're talking, you know, 60s. And he worked out next to me. And if you saw the way this guy was built, you'd say, Jesus freaking Christ, what did you do? And he, he, he said, look, I, why even talk about it? I'll just show you a photograph. The next day he comes outside, he has all these photographs when he was a professional bodybuilder. The guy was jacked. I was like, Jesus, man, you really put work in it. He didn't drink, he didn't use drugs. He was a, you know, nutrition was a big thing in his life and he knew how to talk you know we've talked about guys who are really good at the gift of gab this guy was really good he had charm he was very intelligent he knew about a lot of different things like a jack of all trades and he knew jewelry really well he could tell you the character something the clarity that was his his um that was his job, is to know what was fake, what wasn't. So, yeah, you know, sometimes when you meet a woman and you're, I'm not saying this is the case with Connie, but of course, he didn't have a normal job. So he probably hinted that he could have been connected. And sometimes women like that kind of stuff. And whatever it was, he was in a relationship for you know, several years with her until things went bad. Yeah, and then the narrative I'm getting anyway is that he then dedicates all of his time to tormenting her. And I suppose he was also doing kind of high-stakes robberies at this point during this time also? Yeah, well, he, he's, not a, he's not a robber, a guy who robs people. He believed in the art of burglary. And so let me explain that to the audience. So any moron can pull out a gun and stick in someone's face and get your money and jewels. That wasn't John Riccardi. John Riccardi believed in breaking into people's homes while they were gone on vacation, wherever. And he had a very big trajectory. Los Angeles, Miami, Houston, Chicago, Italy. He went around the world stealing. But he did it because you guys have all seen the, the show It Takes a Thief or uh, with... Uh, uh, this guy with Wagner, uh, who was with Natalie Wood, this is that kind of guy he was. He was a cat burglar. He'd go into, into these multi-million dollar condos, multi-million dollar homes. He'd pick the locks, no violence, just go in there and steal. So that's what he was doing while he was dating her. But when she breaks up with him, it kind of hits a nerve with him. This guy was with a lot of different women. Why Constance uh, Navarro hits such a nerve well, I can only explain that he was probably in love with her and she didn't feel the same way about him. Because when I spoke to him, he still talked about her as if he cared or loved her. But of course, it didn't end that way, but he, he stalks her. I mean, it's not even... If she goes on a date, he knows about it. He's using all of his skills as a observer, a watcher, a burger, and he's stalking her. So he's not the kind of typical stalker. You see a guy who falls in love with Britney Spears and he starts stalking, and she's never seen this guy before. These guys are together at one time. She decides to break up with him. And now he's dedicating most of his day and night to watching her. Um, she goes on a date with a girlfriend, and a guy happens to come along. And in one instance, the guy shakes Connie's hand goodbye, kisses her on the cheek. And before the night's out, 
John Riccardi's calling this guy on the phone, telling him, what the hell are you doing with my girlfriend? And it's becoming really weird because he tells the guy, I'm going to break your freaking legs if you, if you continue. And the guy explains to him, hey, I'm not in any way, shape, or form in a relationship with her. My wife knows her, and we went together to go eat. And it seems that his emotions are getting away with it because then he apologizes, and that night ends. But this is a continual thing. He's breaking into her home at night. It just spends time there. And then he leaves with no, no confrontation or anything. So, yeah, he's doing a really weird thing that are based on an emotional. He's not thinking like he normally does. That's the, the element that's involved in this, in this situation that he's not involved in anything else he does is his emotions. Yeah, so this is basically a two-month period where he's exhibiting this really strange behavior, and eventually it hits a boiling point. But, like, to go back to, I guess the guy's name was George Hofer, and she had a meeting with this guy. I think they were discussing a job opportunity. It wasn't a romantic situation, I don't think. And, yeah, so he calls the guy at his hotel room, and you hear that story, and you're like, Okay, that's creepy, but then you think about it a little deeper, and it's like, I don't even know if I could figure out how to get a hold of that guy at his hotel room. Granted, I wouldn't be stalking someone, but, you know, especially in 1983. I mean, you see a guy, and then you're able to figure out his name and call him at his hotel and threaten him. That's not something the average person sure. can do. No, but a criminal would know exactly what to do. And that's exactly what John Riccardi does. He starts falling back on his criminal background on how to find people. So he knows where the guy's at. He just simply broke into his car and found out all the paperwork, found out his name, called the hotel and said, hey, in room such and such, who's there? That's the guy's name. Passing through his room. So you see how he's taken this to an obsessive level. And it gets even worse than that. The following week, he breaks into Navarro's condo and forces her to sleep with him and refuses to allow her to leave the bedside. He actually holds her the whole night and he sobs. So it's, it's become very obsessive, not normal for this guy. She, she has his heart, whatever she has, but he's turned this thing to a very creepy situation. And, um, you know, because she knows him, she agrees to meet him because he, you know, he tells her, hey, look, I just want to say I'm sorry. So they agreed to meet the following week in a public area. But Riccardi does something he's never done before. He pulls a gun out and demands that she go with him. To calm him down, she actually agrees to go with him. And he takes her to a hotel and spends the weekend with her. And she does spend the weekend with him there, but she's calling friends and telling her friends, listen, I'm okay, everything's fine, but her friends know this is not right. This is a kidnapping. So he's obviously watching over her while she's making these calls the way I read it. And she's trying to say something without saying anything like, hey, just so you guys know, I'm in a hotel. I'm out of town with this guy. But that that was the visual I got was that he was watching her to see what she was saying. So, yeah, he was kidnapping her, but it wasn't like a violent situation. I mean, obviously, there's an inherent violence, but you know what I mean? It, it was it was like a psychological torture. Yeah, I'm sure she felt sorry for him, too. She, you know, she had emotions for this guy at one time, feelings for this guy, and he's breaking down in crime. He has a gun in his hand. She's probably trying to diffuse the situation, and it, it, it intensifies from there because he even shows up uninvited at, at dinner she's with her girlfriends. It just it becomes really bad, so bad, that she writes actually a letter to him, and she's explaining how he's frightening her, and that he's accomplished his goal of terrifying her, and that if he ever felt anything for her, stop to torture because she can't eat, she can't sleep, she's always looking over her shoulder. Um, it's just really bad, and she does um, start seeking advice from an attorney. But as this is going on, Riccardi breaks into her home again, in February, and her son, who we have mentioned before, Dave Navarro, has stayed home because he's sick. And 
Riccardi breaks into the door, into the into the room where his mother's bedroom, and his mother's not there, and he's looking around the house. At which time, Dave Navarro kind of confronts him and says, "Hey, what are you doing here? My mom's not here and stuff." Riccardi ends up handcuffing him to the bathroom when he understands his mom's going to be there, or Connie's going to be there, and then when she does show up. Riccardi goes downstairs and he has a gun in his hand, by the way. So the threat of violence is implied. So when he goes downstairs, Dave Navarro hears an argument ensue between his mother, her mother, his mother, and John Riccardi, and he hears a slap. Well, obviously, Connie slapped Riccardi. He comes back in the bedroom, uncuffs Dave Navarro, He's actually crying and asked that David not tell anybody that um, he did this to him, cuffed him up, because if he did it, that John Riccardi would kill himself. So you can see that he's really off the deep end here. This is a guy who's always been very good at keeping his emotions in check. You have to break into people's homes and you know do these huge jobs. He's lost it. He's got no control of his emotions, and he ends up leaving. And Dave Navarro actually never tells anybody that story until after the terrible incident that happened. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. There's a lot of emotion. Remember, this guy was part of the family. They knew him. They feel bad for him. But they also see he's acting completely crazy. Yeah, in Connie's letter, she explains that the only time she feels safe is when she leaves a place. Because when she's somewhere, she knows he's there, um, and she knows that he's constantly breaking into their home, and even though she's taking precautions, she knows that he'll find a way to get in. And so the only time she feels safe is when she's traveling from place to place with the locks on her car doors locked. And so she essentially feels like she's never alone, because this guy would do things, I think, like you said which is just so scary to to think about. She's out having dinner or drinks with a few friends. He just comes and sits down at the table with them, says nothing, stares at them for a few minutes, which feels like two hours, and then gets up and leaves. Or when she's working out at the gym, you know how a lot of gyms have uh, treadmills and things like that facing a big window that faces the street. He just comes and stares through the window at her and and she knows that the locks on the doors have been continuously messed with. And, I mean, to me, it just seems like, you know, if I was in her situation, I would just be constantly having panic attacks and things like that. I can't imagine how she even survived like that for that long. But, yeah, it's getting weirder. And now he's involving the son who's there. It's just him and the mom that live in the apartment. So now he's taken that step, and that's a, a major escalation too, right? Well, yeah. And, you know, it's, it, it's like I, you said, it escalates very quickly because um, she actually then goes to, to an attorney, gets a restraining order, because she, she understands this guy's not going to let up. And then she discovers that while she's getting her clothes and her son is getting his clothes to go to their, to, well, to her ex-husband's house, who's, um, who's his father, uh, Dave Navarro's father, that the whole time that they're picking everything up, John Riccardi's in the closet. And I don't mean a, a sexual closet. I mean, he's in the closet in the home watching them get ready to leave. And it's pretty creepy stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I got it read a little portion of her letter here i'm so sorry that you're still so angry and you feel a need for vengeance and punishment you've accomplished your goal i feel like a walking dead person going through the motion of life like a small wild animal who knows it's surrounded by a pack of wolves the smallest sound or movement makes me jump the sound of the phone is now frightening because that's another thing he would do was just call incessantly and then there would be no one on the other end except for a guy breathing which is frightening just as a general thing a guy breathing on the phone scary i i know that he has strong feelings for this woman 
I don't know if this is typical with stalkers that they just pick this one person just to focus all their energy on. Psychologically, I don't really understand what's going on, if there's some delusion that he's going to get her back. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because usually people that do this have a record of it. They have priors. They, they do this to several people in different relationships with people they don't know. This guy has dated beautiful women, models his whole life. And yet this one does it to his brain. And whatever it was, whatever it did, I asked him point blank about this stuff. And remember, I, as I said, I, I know this guy. I, I, I was with him for more than uh, more than 10 years in the yard. So I know what this guy did. I asked several times, what was it? I mean, why would you do this? Of course, I need a case because you can read his case here in the law library, you know, once the case goes to the Supreme Court of California. And I asked him why. I mean, this is some pretty creepy stuff, John. This doesn't seem like you. And he would just shake his head and say, and uh, I just I just lost it. I mean, I really cared for her. That was his excuse. It that does not make it any better. But so the night of the killing, um, I, you know, this is the part where there's a bit of insight on my part. Cause I asked him about the night of the killing. And I said, look, I mean, there's two people that you killed. That's why he has a special circumstance, by the way. It's multiple murder. That's why he was sent to death row. Um, and I asked him, I said, look, they pretty much think that you went there to kill her. And he, and he immediately, no, 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 no. That was not the plan. I could, I went there, like I go there many times, and I would just sit in a closet or I'd watch her when she slept. And I said, you, you get that's pretty creepy, right? And he's like, you got to understand how I felt about her. And he made a lot of excuses. But when I asked him, look, what really happened? He actually knew where she was at that night. She was with her friend, they were out, they had drinks, they had dinner, whatever. And he had someone else call her. He was trying to, to pinpoint where she would be. And then he goes, he breaks into the house, and he's waiting in the apartment. So she comes home that night from an evening, and her friend's with her. It's another woman. You know, they're, they're friends, she's not dating another guy. And... There's a confrontation, and it's very unclear what happened that night because no one really knows but the three people that were there. But I asked John, "Look, man, I mean, why would you do this or kill these two people?" He said, "That wasn't my intention." He said he got in an argument with her, and she sprayed something in his face. And I asked, him, "What do you mean she sprayed it?" He goes, "Yeah, we were in the bedroom, man, and she got mad at me." She, she slapped me once, and then she got something in her hand, and she sprayed me, and he said, I lost it. So he pulls out a gun, which he's described as a thirty-eight, and he shoots her twice in the right and left side of her chest, which obviously um, killed her. And then he knew somebody else was in the house. Now his whole instinct's about... Someone else is here. Someone else is going to know that it was me. So he comes out and he finds, which was a very, was a very close proximity, proximity to where uh, he had killed uh, Connie. And he pulled the gun. And when he goes to shoot, the woman actually knew that the bullet was coming or that he was about to shoot her because she put her hand up. He shot through her hand and hit her in the uh, throat region. And that killed her as well. And, of course, he just disappears after that. The police department, that evening, or the next day, when they started looking for this guy, because they had some fingerprints and stuff, everything disappeared. He left his motorcycle, his cars, everything, his apartment, he just disappeared. Yeah, I read that the detectives that surveyed the scene they noticed the skylight was a little bit askew, but it was one of those high ceiling places and they thought, well, there's no way anyone could have got in through that skylight, so we're not even going to fingerprint it or anything. And I mean, that's just an idea of how sophisticated this guy is. And so if he wanted to do it, there was really nothing she could do outside of like sleeping in a jail cell or something. Let's, uh, 
And it's like I said to you, he had to lay out the house. I mean, this is a cat burglar, and you basically have been living in that house or knows that house for years. There's nothing you can just stop this guy. Thing. Yeah, so he's going to be on the run, evading capture for a long time. Can we go back real quick? When you're talking to him and he's saying, oh, you know, I don't know what happened. I just kind of snapped or, or whatever. I just really cared about this person. You know, this was a several-month period. This isn't one bad moment that he had. I think we can all understand that. What's his level of being repentant for this? What responsibility is he taking in this when you're talking to him? Yeah, he, you know, he has, a, he has an answer for everything. This is what this guy does. You know, he's very good at what he does. He's a liar, too. So, you know, he tells me that, oh, man, you know, there was problems, and that night I didn't intend it. His whole excuse, if you want to call it that, is that she slapped him and it sprayed him in the eyes, and he was so upset. So his whole excuse is that she slapped him, that got him upset, and then she sprayed something in his eyes, and it hurt so badly. And according to him, it was... He shot out of rage, but it, he really didn't mean to shoot. He had the gun out, and it kind of went off, he said. He kind of started making excuses, which I didn't believe. I knew he was lying at that point. So I knew that he was never going to take complete responsibility for this, but I knew that he felt bad for it. You know, he, he wanted, but he didn't, okay, so, but I mean feel bad. He felt bad that they could not get back together. He could continue with the life he had with her. That's what really upset him more than anything else. Because with a guy like that, it's one of those things that you hear many times. If I can't have her, no one's going to have her. That was basically his position, although he would not admit it. I see. So he, yeah, he's just still kind of in denial to himself or, or not man enough to admit to another man what what he did so he's on the run now he ends up getting plastic surgery to augment his nose and remove a mole it kind of looks like they cut half of his nose off or something um and we know he's still committing burglaries during this period but what do you think his actual day-to-day -day life is like what's his lifestyle during this time no different guy is not the kind of guy you know that commits a crime and then he goes to his mother's house to hide out. This guy is not that guy. He's a very sophisticated criminal. So, as you mentioned, he gets plastic surgery. He immediately, he knows people that get him out of here. He actually had a driver's license by a guy with the name of Fael. He had all the paperwork he needed. He looked nothing like the guy that we knew as John Riccardi. He didn't look, he didn't talk to the same people. He did meet with his father on occasions, but like John Riccardi told me, my father, whose name was Pat, hey, he taught me everything I know, so much so that the FBI actually put a tail on John Riccardi's father, and John Riccardi's father lost him several times. That's how good this guy was. They could never trail him to connect him with his son. So during this time, John Riccardi's moving, and, and we had numerous conversations about this. Miami, Houston, Los Angeles, Italy, Chicago. And he would move around. He'd live in these beautiful condominiums. He continued to commit high-end burglaries with a crime partner that he had by the name of Sabatino. This guy was also an expert lockpick. Both of these guys were very high-end cat burglars, jewelry thieves. And some of the best, so much so that John Riccardi was around for nearly 10 years. He was featured on America's Most Wanted for several episodes trying to catch this guy. They get calls from everyone. We saw him here. We saw him there. But there was a, a, a task force that was really after him. They could never catch him. The break that they got was his daughter, meaning John Riccardi's daughter, Lori, got into a plane crash. He was very close to her, and she died in that plane crash. The FBI began tailing her, hoping they could find something. When she dies, they figure, John Riccardi's going to the funeral. 
But the funeral takes place, and the FBI don't know exactly where it's at. And I asked John, did you go? And he smiled. He says, of course I went. That was my daughter. Didn't matter if the FBI had the Marines there. I was going to the funeral. John Riccardi went to that funeral, and the FBI could not distinguish who he was. Wow. Can you imagine that? No. Again, that's that's just <clears throat> fictional-sounding stuff. Uh, I mean, what did his nose look like when you came to know him? Oh, you know, very, very well-developed nose. It didn't look like types of surgery, but we know he had it. He had chin cut. He had... Um, you know, kind of a facelift. He had the nose reduced in size. He had some moles taken out. He had his eyes uh, lifted. He looked like a normal guy. He didn't look funny to me or anything, but I know he looked different from the time when he first committed this crime. And no one could catch this guy. I mean, look, it took years. It was, um, they were, they put tails on his family, on his ex-wife. Um, this guy did not get involved in things that would bring attention to him. He lived a normal life. And as I said, if you met him on the streets or in a club, you would the furthest thing from your mind would be he's a criminal. Because he's very charismatic. He was a wise guy. Italian accent, a little bit of a Brooklyn accent. He was a character. Don't mistake that with a person with character. He was a character. And you couldn't help but kind of like be a little impressed with some of the stuff that he would say and how he, he, he presented himself. Especially when he said, look, I'm a, I'm a former professional bodybuilder. And he looked it. So when you think about he was, for this eight years that he was on the run, he's committing burglaries. He was committing burglaries for at least a decade or more before he went on the run. Isn't there a, a a rule of numbers here? I mean, what is he doing? One a week, one a month, two a year? I, I would just think that if he's doing burglaries for that long, he would have been somehow busted for just for that. Well, you would think a lot of numbers would go against him, but he was very good at what he did. He um, he investigated the mark. What I mean by that is he studied the place he was going to break into. He said the habits of the people, it's not a, not too different from what I do in the yard. I study people. I, I learn their habits. I know if someone had made their coffee and it's not working out, something's probably up. He's involved in something. Those are the type of things that people in the behavioral sciences, observing criminals or marks, it's what they do. John Riccardi was an expert at human behavior. I, mean, I know that sounds kind of crazy. I'm giving a lot of credit, but you got to give credit to a person. You have to understand that what he did for a living was exactly that. He watched people. So for him to observe people, not that difficult to figure out what the FBI was doing, what the law enforcement was doing. So, yeah, I mean, that's this guy. Hey, look, he didn't change his lifestyle. And the amount of burglaries, they, they had him for at least 100 burglaries that they suspected him of in the Los Angeles, Chicago, and Miami area. That's not to count some of the other places like Italy was at. He drove Cadillacs. He dressed well. He had a very expensive condominium in Houston where he was living when they, they actually caught him. Here's another one for you. When they finally caught up to him, because one of the classic surgeons, when they put it on America's Most Wanted, said, oh, shoot. I've done this guy's face. He calls the FBI over. They get the photographs of before and after. And they have all this information. They have sketches of him and everything. When they actually find him, because a woman called in and said, look, I know where this guy's at. He's living in Houston. Um, he, ha and he actually had driver's license and everything. Everything was legal. When they catch him, he pulled, on, on January the 4th, 1991, he pulls into his own condo in a brand new Cadillac. And even the FBI agents, when they arrest him and they look at him, he looks nothing like the guy in the photographs. It's one of these cases where America's Most Wanted is actually a good TV show because it's not, it's not just fluff. They actually caught people from that show. So, yeah, he, for eight years, he 
eluded capture and and he wasn't living in a tent under an underpass or anything so you know pretty good in in terms of you know he did better at it than most people most people don't make it a year or a few months right yeah that's totally true and here's the, the real interesting thing is when they catch him and of course yeah this is a big thing for the fbi you know he's been on the show with john walsh America's Most Wanted, he's um, involved in, he's involved in all these criminal activities, he hasn't stopped, all his connections in New York are still good, a lot of the mob guys he's hanging with are still good, but when they catch him, they find in his condominium over $750,000 cash, they go into his bank uh, safety deposit box, and they find several million, I didn't say thousand, million dollars in cash and jewelry. This guy is well stocked. He can live this lifestyle for several years and continue on as he was. And that tells me that he did not slow down his burglaries. And actually, I asked him, he said, why would I slow down? I wasn't getting caught before. Why would I get caught now? Nothing changes. That was his attitude. And he would just kind of chuckle. So, as I said, he spent time here on death row for many years. He uh, he uh, finally got a reversal. The Supreme Court of California decided that that should not stand. His sentence and his conviction should stand. They gave him life and he went to the prison. This was several years ago. I believe it was 2012. But in that time before he left here, I was surprised to see him in the visiting room. He didn't get a lot of visits. Pretty solitary guy. He's very old, too, by that time. But who shows up in the visiting room? Dave Navarro. Oh, yeah, I saw that on that documentary that I watched called Morning Sun that Dave Navarro made about uh, coming to terms with this event that was obviously very traumatic for him. So... Yeah, in the documentary, they go to San Quentin, and they can't film it, but they show that he that he went there. Yeah, and actually, it was really strange, because I was in the, the booth right next to him. And so, just to give the audience a bit of, a, of, a, of an overview or a visual of what the visiting room... Before, visiting used to be like a big cafeteria. You know, you'd come in there, you don't have any cuffs on, your, your visitor, your girlfriend, whoever, your wife, family, mother, come to see you. Um, and you can hug, and then you sit down, and you can walk around by things in the vending machine. By this time, when Dave Navarro came to visit us, an incident had taken place in the visiting room where a death row inmate pulled out a knife, and he started stabbing another death row inmate. And there was a very big scuffle in there. Kids were in there. I was in the visiting room that day with my son and at the time my wife and there was pepper spray being thrown in there and all this stuff and, and actually my son developed a, a lung disorder because of that you know and so because of that incident they, they, they put these big cages in there they're about 10 feet by 5 feet they're like this chain link stuff that you see at batting cages so each visitor comes to visit one particular inmate and they're separated from everybody else there's no chance of them um, having any kind of uh, contact with other inmates, which would reduce the um, the possibility of violence. I'll come back. So, you know, they have these booths out there, as I was mentioning, and they're full contact visits. And the booth I was in, which actually was booth number uh, six, John Riccardi is brought in in handcuffs and he's released into. The, the booth right next to ours, which is booth five. And as I said, he knows me real well. I know him. He meets says, hey, how you doing? He uh, he laughs. He smiles. And about maybe five minutes later, here comes Dave Navarro walking in. And I knew who he was. I listened to James Edition. I, I, I know he's a very famed guitarist, a, a very good musician. So, you know, he, he, they open the door, and David comes into the booth. They shake hands. And they sit down to discuss. Now, granted, Riccardi's kind of, you could tell there's nervousness going on there. Uh, if it was my mother, he had done something too. I mean, it'd be a 
probably a different ball game going on there. But you could tell that Dave Navarro was very reserved. He was he wasn't smiling a lot. He wasn't. Um, and I don't think he was enjoying the visit. I think he was going through some kind of emotional. Um, he had to do that. I think he had to confront his demon or to confront the monster in his life. And I think that's part of what he was going through. Very traumatic. He was 15 years old when this happened. His mother's life's taken. So as an adult man, he's there, I think, to confront the monster in the closet. I don't know. I, I guess you would build up what you're going to say and everything and then picture looking at this old guy. I'm guessing it, it doesn't play out the way you probably map it out in your head, you know? Yeah, that, that's, that's a real big one. I mean, I, I'm not sure I can climb that mountain. It's, it must be very difficult for him. I, I wasn't really paying a whole lot of attention to him because I was there with a visitor as well. But I know that I glanced over a couple of times. I could, you know, they're right next to us. So I could hear them talking and stuff. And, um, you know, I, it, it's kind of funny because I, I know that Dave Navarro has kind of uh, an interest in serial killers. I, you know, I, I've mentioned it before. He bought John Gacy's The Serial Killer, who we did an episode about a couple episodes ago. He, uh, ago, he bought um, one of his famed clown paintings. So I, there's, there's a bit of darkness to it, and it could have been because of his what happened to his mother. But that's just part of the story that kind of adds intrigue into this whole thing that, you know, a guy who plays in these bands, you know, obviously had addiction problems, um, the life of a rock star, mother's murdered, collects John Gacy art. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to peel back in that onion. Um, but I'm glad he confronted whatever he needed to confront. I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that he did get a bit of peace and, um, So I don't even know if John Riccardi is still alive. I tried to find this information. He would be in his mid to late 80s. I think he'd be 87 or something. Uh, He was transferred to Tracy. The last record I could find on the internet, I don't know if you saw this, but in 2018... He wrote that he had been uh, transferred from San Quentin to Tracy. He proceeds to uh, complain or file some grievances about that he can't use the phone, that his property is not with him, that he doesn't have access to a TV typewriter, a hot pot, and that he, yeah, he can't use the phone or boil water, and that he wants to be sent to San Luis Obispo, a different prison. Um... And I guess he says at that point he had been waiting to be transferred for half a year, 165 days. Uh, He then proceeds to, I don't know if you know this story, there was a corrections officer named Cuevas, and he claims that him and some other inmates saved Cuevas' life on the East Block and so I think he's trying to kind of curry favor by claiming he saved this guy's life. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, and I don't know he wrote that letter, but I know the story about Cuevas. Cuevas is an officer here. He's now, you know, I think he's a sergeant or something, but it, it was in the newspaper here, actually. Uh, the San Quentin newspaper had a story about that Cuevas had a, a an obstruction to his breathing, and two inmates from the main line helped protect him. They, 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 they performed a, a maneuver, and it got him to breathe again, so obviously he saved his life, which was a good thing. But John Riccardi, uh, I guess, knew about this, and he knew Cuevas in a way, and he wanted to uh, kind of say whatever he wanted to say about that he knew this guy or whatever. But the interesting thing about this is that I've mentioned this before a number of times, and that is that, you know, when you're on death row, you get all these privileges, phone every day, yell this stuff. And there's just a little bit more of the same thing that you have John Riccardi, who's now got life. He goes to another prison. He can't get on the phone. He can't get his property. He can't. It's not so nice when you're on the main line and you don't get all these privileges. <laughs> you kind of, I think it was kind of a death sentence for him to get life rather than be on death row. Yeah. So how did he do in prison? I'm assuming, well, because he was smart and intimidating and had mob connections. But he also did, you know, kind of manipulate. He killed two women, so that's not looked at uh, positively. 
Yeah, no, he, look, John McCarty, as I said, was a criminal, but he was not a violent person. He didn't have the skills to deal with the guys here. He stayed out of people's way. You know, it didn't matter how big he was in the streets. In prison, there's a lot bigger guys, a lot stronger guys, a lot more violent. John McCarty went to the yard, stayed in the cell. I spoke to him a lot of times, probably every day for maybe 10 years I spoke to him, or probably longer than that. And he never intimidated anybody, never trained on stuff. He's an old guy who had a lot going for him, very charismatic, as I mentioned, but he stayed out of people's way. Um, he talked to a few people, and that's it. He did not have any real relationship with anybody aside from probably me, because we talked a lot. Uh, and I found him interesting. I thought he was an interesting character, but he was not in any way, shape, or form the kind of guy that you picture, oh, a violent, big guy who's going to intimidate anybody in prison. So, yeah, no. So on the demographics of death row, or obviously you're going to estimate this, but you know, a lot of gang related murders, some serial killers, that's a minority, but how many guys are there because they just in a jealous fit or whatever, just from killing their wife or girlfriend? Like how many of those guys are there? Oh, there's, yeah, there's a few of them. There's a few of them, but as I said before, his crimes don't insult anybody here. He didn't rape anybody. He didn't molest any children. So people didn't care about him. He was, I, I don't want to, I hate to say this word, but I'm only referring to that he was a zero. Nobody cared about him either way. So no one bothered him. As long as he kept his nose clean, he didn't get in debt with anybody, didn't gamble, or get involved in any of those things that you could get involved in prison or get you killed, no one's going to mess with him. Going back real quick, there were three inmates who performed CPR on this corrections officer. Was he attacked, or did he have a heart attack, or what happened? No, he, he had um, something got caught in his throat. He couldn't believe, breathe. Mm. And from what I read, I'm, I'm not around in this situation, but I read it in the same quick newspaper. And because he couldn't breathe, these inmates performed CPR on him, and they got him to breathe again. Of course, he lived. I see. So did Riccardi, I mean, did this go away? Did he get any medication for his, like, obsessive tendencies? Or <laughs> I guess it didn't matter at that point. That sounds callous. I'm sorry. But is there any resolution in his mind here? Or he just, you know, he just denied any culpability or, or whatever. He just put it out of his mind, I guess. Well, I think it, it comes down to the the focus of obsession is no longer there. He murdered the focal point. Once that happens, although he has his moments when he talked to me and say, oh, man, I really cared about her, the obsession is gone because the person is gone. And as I mentioned before, that whole thing of if I can't have her, no one's going to have her type of thing, that plays a part in the, in the psychology of this guy's mind. Um, I mean, he lived a, a, a long life out there. He was out there until he was in his seventies. So, really, there's nothing that anybody could say that he needed medication because the medication was that he uh, no longer had to obsess over her because he, he took the life. He took the life of the person that was his obsession. But wouldn't you think he would start obsessing over a new woman, some pen pal, or something? I mean. Do you think he had done this kind of thing to other women before? Is it normal that you just no. have this one subject and that's it? No. If he had this with someone else, they would have known about it and they would have brought it in the penalty phase, which is clear that there is no indication that John Riccardi ever did this before. And kind of the proof of it is, I've mentioned you many times that serial killers and rapists and people like that. Here, when they go to the yard, they start looking for photographs like that of women, of kids, or whatever. John McCarty didn't even write anybody. He basically just came to prison and lived on the money that he had, and that was it. He wasn't getting visits, he wasn't chasing women, he wasn't doing any of those things, which is very interesting. Well, I still think it's really weird. I would think usually this type of weirdo would have multiple subjects. I guess there's just some things that are not explainable, and... That's, I guess, the story of John Riccardi. Don't know if he's alive or not. Probably barely clinging to life somewhere. And that's it. 
Thanks for your analysis, and we'll be back next week with another story. So I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagara. Please be aware of your surroundings. Your life could depend on it.